0: this is OShip, ship the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them and there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host chameleon collective founding partner freddie laker ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the OSHIP ship show the podcast where we explore the trials and tribulations of leadership and entrepreneurialism I'm your host, Freddie Laker, and today we have an extraordinary guest who has made it his mission to create positive change on a global scale. In fact, today's episode will focus on the transformative power of entrepreneurship and its ability to tackle some of the world's greatest challenges. Joining us today is Ben Lam, a technology entrepreneur with an impressive track record, including five successful exits to companies like Accenture, Zinger, and LivePerson. But What sets Ben apart is his unwavering passion for startups, emerging tech, and actually addressing critical issues such as climate change, loss of biodiversity, and the future of the planet. I'm lucky to have known Ben a really long time before he started doing some of these very interesting businesses I'm about to tell you about. Currently, Ben serves as the co-founder and CEO of Colossal Biosciences. You may have heard of them. They're a groundbreaking bioscience and genetic engineering company. Colossal actually pioneers revolutionary technologies and in genomics, including the restoration of extinct species, protection of critically endangered species, and the repopulation of vital ecosystems. They're applying CRISPR technology, which we're going to talk about today if you're not familiar with it, and they're actually taking on this humanity's duty to restore Earth to a healthier state than it's been in the most recent past, starting with the iconic woolly mammoth. In fact, these guys were actually just named one of the hundred most influential companies in the Time 100, a truly amazing recognition. So hats off to Ben and team. Prior to Colossal, Ben co-founded and led Hypergiant Industries, an enterprise AI company that focused on solving some of the most significant problems in space, defense, and critical infrastructure. I think you might notice a bit of a pattern here that Ben doesn't exactly take on small tasks. He's also been the co-founding of Spatial Worlds, the co-founding of Worlds, a spatial AI company that revolutionizes how organizations see and understand their physical environments. Throughout his career, Ben has not only identified pressing global challenges, but also innovative strategies to overcome obstacles that scale his impact. He's fostered company cultures that promote creativity, collaboration, and a sense of purpose among his team members and he understands the delicate balance between profitability and addressing urgent global issues. So in today's episode, we're gonna delve deep into Ben's entrepreneurial journey. We're gonna discuss some pivotal moments that solidified his commitment to creating a positive impact and the ethical considerations and potential implications of de-extinct species and the responsible use of cutting edge technologies like CRISPR or AI in driving systemic change. So without further ado, let's welcome Ben Lamb to the O'Ship Show as we explore the intersection of entrepreneurship and addressing some of the world's biggest problems. And here we go. Ben, welcome to O'Ship. How are you?
1: Great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's great to have you. I can't help but not notice the prolific amount of mammoths that you have behind you, totally on brand. I'd love to explore your, I don't want to call it a toy shelf, but definitely a memorabilia shelf
1: back there. Yeah, I, I like books and then I get given a lot of really interesting things. I think I may be over-indexed in mammoths <laughs> currently, but, but I'll take it.
0: Uh, again, like I said, uh, definitely on brand. You know, first off, it's great to see you. It's been quite a few years since we had a chance to see each other in person. Hey Ben, I want to make sure that our audience is familiar with some of the core technologies that the company uses. Can you explain how CRISPR
1: works and how you're applying that at Colossal? Yeah, what people don't realize about the entire gene, you know, editing field is we heard in the 90s we had a lot of promises of like gene therapies and they'll be able to make customized drugs for you and whatnot. For us, though, you know, the discovery of CRISPR. By a lot of people that were involved in that from Jennifer Doudna to George and many others that were in that journey, you know, kind of opened up and started showing that not only can we manipulate and push the genomes in certain ways, but we can actually change individual single nucleotides. When people actually think about the kind of twisted ladder and the DNA helix, those individual rungs of the ladder can be now changed. In addition to that, we can even knock out segments, right? And it's not part perfect. Sometimes it creates what's called off-target effects and it affects things downstream or upstream in the genome, right? And so you have to be, you know, very thoughtful about where you're doing things. There's regulatory regions, coding regions, not like non-coding regions. There's a lot to the genome that I think the general public sometimes doesn't realize. And I certainly didn't realize until I got into the industry. But now the tools have come so far that not only can you make these individual like knockouts where you're cutting and knocking out pieces of the DNA and having it, you know, reassemble and using guide RNAs to identify where to do that. But separately, you can even change some of the letters from a certain type of nucleotide to a different one. You can change the nucleotides from one to another. You can also engineer, and there's a lot of work that's being done in protein engineering and DNA synthesis, where you're actually synthesizing the big blocks of DNA, right? Still small relative to the in- entire strand. And then you can do entire uh, swaps where you can you know, essentially do two cuts and put an entire Swap in, and so why that's important is when you're making a lot of edits, like what we're doing with Colossal. You know, sometimes if you're making a lot of edits, on uh, all in the same part of the genome, sometimes it's easier to engineer that whole piece and swap that in versus make a bunch of edits that could lead you know, to different off-target effects somewhere else, right? So it's a very interesting field that's advancing pretty quickly. And the area that we're spending a lot of time in is called multiplex editing, where instead of just making individual edits at one part of the genome, we're building guides that allow in certain delivery mechanisms that allow us to edit a lot of different places in the genome all at the same time.
0: Oh, okay. Big.
1: What I didn't mention in your bio is that when we first connected,
0: you were actually more on the kind of professional services, creative, like even like game development part of the business. And I want to be clear in saying that while I have enormous respect for any of our brethren that may have you know built comparable professional services businesses you've made this kind of crazy leap into some really really forward thinking technologies that have major global impacts how did you go from there to where you're at right now because i'm going to be taking notes on this one just for
1: personal reasons but like that's a pretty huge transition career wise i think i'm insatiably curious right and so what i loved about you know right out of college not knowing exactly what i was going to do thinking about, you know, solving big client problems in with emerging technologies, right? That was very interesting. We kind of grew up in kind of the you know age of mobile and like, you know, every single business was like starting to like build APIs and other technologies that at this point, you know, now everything runs on these various software systems. So, you know, I feel like our business career started at a really interesting point in software. People, people started thinking about user interfaces. People started thinking about user-centered design. People started thinking about applications and what they could do for their businesses and how software could help revolutionize their business Businesses. And so, you know, I don't like to think of myself as a product person, a science person, and a client services person. Fundamentally, my entire career has just been working with much smarter, you know, women and men than me on these challenges. And, you know, I think that working with a lot of really great brands early in my career, I got to see a lot of hard and interesting problems and kind of learn different ways to bring teams together to solve those problems. And then, you know, as I've progressed, you know, moving from mobile to gaming, to conversational intelligence, my partner and I joked that we missed the conversational intelligence wave by like six years and $40 billion. But then, you know, obviously then into space and defense now into ecosystem restoration. And, but I mean,
0: and- like, how do you go from mobile games to trying to like, Bring back extinct species, or like using AI to solve defense or like infrastructure challenges. all, I mean, all, I like
1: mean a it's huge, all, like psychological jump, in my opinion. But they're definitely probably psychological jumps. But it's all about you know bring together the best subject matter experts, right? And then most of these problems are systems problems, right? So I think that's a common theme, right? Like what most people I think don't realize about, you know, loss of biodiversity, conservation, and de-extinction is it's really a systems problem. It's not really that much different than building critical infrastructure, AI-based solutions, or, you know, satellite software, or even games, right? These are all systems problems just with different teams and different expertise and different applications to it. And de-extinction is a systems problem, right? You've got to look at the entire whole. You can't go solve like one little point solution. You've got to build the entire infrastructure and personnel and technologies in order to go tackle it. And so I think that methodology of looking at things kind of through a you know systems engineering perspective has kind of helped me, you know, probably, as you say, jump from different categories, but I've just found things that I'm interested in and, you know, try to bring smarter people together and then apply the systems approach.
0: So it, when you look at whether it's Colossal or even some of the other kind of more recent companies you've been involved in. Did the problem present itself to you through maybe a third party? And then you said, Man, this is really cool. And you kind of immerse yourself in it. Did you kind of seek out the problem because you saw it, whether say you read the news or something? Like, how did that part of the journey? No,
1: I wouldn't say that it's been the same for each, right? Like Mm -hmm. so, for when we started Conversible, which was a conversational OS, you know, it was a problem that one of my business partners, Andrew Busey, really saw, and he thought that. You know, the world with like the advent of Alexa and Cortana and others, there was really going to move towards more and more conversational interfaces and natural language processing systems. So he was that, you know, influence on that, you know, with Space and Defense, I'd gone to a couple of really interesting, had a couple of really interesting conversations in Washington, met some folks, got asked to go to the Pentagon. In that process, met some defense contractors heard about some of the problems. I was like, well, we could take a different approach to that, right? And then Colossal was really George Church's vision, right? And so Mm -hmm. I actually reached out to George about completely other topics, right? Mm -hmm. But because I'm curious, While I was on the call, I was like, well, what else are you working on? And George walked through, you know, the litany of different things his incredible lab and postdocs are working on. But then he ended with, you know, kind of that Steve Jobs, one more thing. He's like, I'm also working to bring back mammoths and build technologies for conservation as well as bring back other extinct species and restore ecosystems. And then he was like, I have to go. And so then the rest of the night, all I did was stay up and research it because I'm curious and, and thought, well, maybe I should go, you know, try to do this.
0: On a scale of one to 10, how much fun are you having, by the way? Because to me, this looks like you're just like working on some really fun stuff.
1: I mean, it's really fun to work on hard challenges with really smart people, right? And then when you layer on kind of the cool factor and also the impact factor that we can have, you know, on conservation, as well as the cool factor of like actually bringing back the same species, it's pretty great. I often joke that my worst days here are still pretty cool. Like any business you still or any startup, you you have good days and bad days, but it's pretty fun to work on every day. I feel like
0: it's got to be a lot easier to work on something, even when you're having those hard days, whatever that might be, staff issues, fundraising, whatever the nightmare of the day is. It's kind of really overshadowed when you're working on something that you know actually means something. And I think that's really exciting. And so if you were to kind of give advice to any other aspiring entrepreneurs, leaders out there who are passionate about making a difference, but maybe unsure about where to start or how to bring those ideas to life, you know, what advice would you give
1: them? I think that you should follow your curiosity. I think a lot of people talk about passion and everyone should do what they're passionate about, but I like to do things that I'm curious about, right? And that I want to learn more. And so I think that if you take this mentality of never stop learning and you know, trying to continue to learn, advance your skill sets, and if you apply them to some of the world's largest challenges, I think that there's a cultural mind sh- shift in the world where people are wanting to support, you know, not just moonshots, but things that have, you know, potential moonshot applications, as well as, you know, have true impact. And I think that, you know, the world's gone through this like transition of companies that were only value creation to value and creation plus impact and now it's like value creation plus impact plus inspiration right mm-hmm. and so you know we have so many people that are incredibly supportive of our company both from investors to advisors to our employees to the external public and it really does help us right it's massively inspiring when we get like letters of like little kids that like draw woolly mammoth and they're like Thank you for doing this. Like, I mean, they did not do that at you know Conversable or Hypergiant. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, no one was like, we're drawing. Yeah, you know, we didn't get like kids that like send a picture of an interface and they're like, thank yeah, you. yeah, 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 yeah. Thank thank <laughs> no no, no one's automated for. DOD, like we never
0: yeah. got. You know, yeah, I would love to, to get us. a PowerPoint deck sent to me by like a six-year-old who's like, "Your business strategy changed my life." No, that's sad never. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah we, I, we, we didn't get many from DOD. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things you mentioned that I think is both humble, but also you know, speaking to the truth yeah. of when it, you these big challenges you're dealing with is the fact that you're not doing this on your own. There's a sense of collaboration and a lot of collaborative partnerships are going on. And yes, that might be you know the team members and these incredible experts you get to work with. But I also can imagine that when you're dealing with things at the complexity and with the world-changing implications you're dealing with, what about like the other organizations, scientific bodies, governments, or even maybe even third-party individuals out there? Can you talk a little bit about like, basically how the collaboration is important to or not important to maybe driving systemic change as some of these global challenges yeah i
1: think a lot of times people see entrepreneurs and they don't give bigger credits to the full teams entrepreneurship is a team sport right like you don't win alone it is a true team sport and so for me i think it's really important to want to acknowledge those teams but those teams don't end at the walls of your buildings or labs you know for us you know we work very closely with local governments federal governments both you know with the united states and abroad with our partners private landowners EPAs and equivalents of those EPAs and fish and wildlife around the world, indigenous people groups, and then universities and scientific groups around the world. And so for Colossal, we have this really collaborative approach. And I think it's kind of baked into kind of the cultural zeitgeist of what we're building here. But then I think fundamentally it's also required, right? I think that it's authentic because it's built into the culture here, but it is fundamentally required, right? Like for us, whether we can, you know, Bring back a specific species, like in the case of the dodo, you know, we all are in the U.S. are excited about the dodo, right? Or we're excited about the thylacine because it's cool and it's extinct and, you know, and mankind like eradicated it and can undo the sins of the past. But like it means something different to the Mauritian people. Or the dodo was actually endemic and then went extinct. Mm -hmm. And the thylacine means something different to the Australian people, right? So you really need to be inclusive, right, in these projects, not just from a technological achievement perspective and a long-term rewilding perspective. So we have to take this global perspective to collaboration as we think about this.
0: As you're talking through some of these examples, when you think about whether it's the woolly mammoth or the dodo bird, so, you know, these are really kind of like classically famous extinct animals. Charismatic megafauna, yeah, yeah. I guess my point, was there like a strategy in maybe starting with those to bring awareness to the technology so that then you yeah. can
1: go and bring it to a broader set of species? Well, our our original goal was to always be the de-extinction company. We started with kind of the Mammoth Project as our flagship, right? Because one, co founded with George Church, he had worked on it for eight years. He had the DNA, he'd been working on the process, designed a lot of the CRISPR guides, had gone through a lot of gene identification work and understanding the differences between Asian elephants and mammoths, and also had applications to how this could help save elephants and help existing species of elephants that exist, as well as rewild them in the impl- implications of kind of transforming the you know, Arctic landscape back into kind of the Mammoth Steppe ecosystem. And so we had this broad vision. So we were like, we're going to start there. And then as we brought on more collaborators, knowing that our long-term goal was to expand, both our investors were happy with our progress and wanted to give us more money, plus new investors wanted to come in. And then all of our scientists, advisors started bringing us other opportunities. We got introduced to Dr. Pask and the University of Melbourne. So we started working on that and we're like, okay, the systems approach is scalable so we can start working on that. And then we made a lot of progress on that. And then one of our advisors had worked on, Bess Shapiro had been working on the Dodo for about 18 years and wow. um and she was already part of the company, pay so lead paleo so she's absolutely incredible and our investors were like what about the dono and so a lot of it was driven by you know kind of feedback from the world feedback from the community feedback from our investors and whatnot because once you build the scalable system you know we can layer on a couple of different species mm-hmm. and kind of leverage that infrastructure and approach to different projects because all of them have similarities slight differences there's different challenges along each and we thought that pairing these three together would exponentially create you know new opportunities to Mm. solve problems that could apply to you know critically endangered species like birds that we hadn't even thought of yet
0: if you read the news for any, any of our audience out there it's not uncommon that you might run across some article talking about how we're entering actually another great extinction you know and it's a mammoth problem yeah, Sorry. It's the, I couldn't was, resist that. No, no, it, it, yeah, it's like,
1: <laughs> we get lots of mammoth jokes and we get lots of Jurassic Park jokes. I don't think I've ever really <laughs> been on stage where they haven't played the music. Like, See what we did there? And I, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're, you're like, like, I know, I couldn't resist. But we are going to lose. To your point, we could lose up to fifty percent of all biodiversity between now and 2050 if we don't do anything. Right, and so if you look at existing conservation, and conservation's great, and it works on a small scale, unfortunately. Humanity's moving at humanity speed, and you know we are eradicating species. We're polluting environments. We're changing the climate. We're eradicating forests and wetlands and other locations where some of these species lives. And so we're creating a acceleration into this next mass extinction event mm-hmm. where it's triggered by kind of global catastrophe or mm-hmm. you know a- existing external forces. It's us, and so mm-hmm. you know I think that the work that we can do can be helpful to give new tools to conservation and arm them with the tools of today versus, you know, fighting this terrible, you know, war against loss of biodiversity with the tools of, you know, a hundred years ago, like just rounding up land and like protecting it and pretending and putting people on it to prevent poaching and crossing our fingers is just not the right approach. Like we need to be Biobanking, using genetic rescue, using next gen sequencing technologies, as well as genetic engineering technologies to reintroduce biodiversity genetically. You know, we have these tools, right? But conservation is massively underfunded. So part of our thesis was we will, you know, one, build this like long term de extinction toolkit. So, you know, not to be too dystopian, but we can undo things. If it gets to that point, right, I think that needs to be in humanity's treasure chest of tools. And then separately, you know, we can advance the technologies to apply for human healthcare, and then subsidize, you know, that into conservation and then give tools to conservation groups so that they can go faster.
0: I don't know if this is something you're comfortable talking about, but is it possible to kind of share what the kind of like cost to bring a species back is? And I assume that Part of this, it's like, you know, we talk about people, you know, producing lab grown meat, you know, hamburgers 250
1: grand now, but if we keep working on it, then it's similar. Like, I'm
0: guessing the same like, applies here.
1: Yeah, we've gotten feedback where people are like, well, this is just going to make it where people, you know, think that we can just bring anything back. Saying, no, this is very expensive. This is very hard to your lab grown meat problem. I think that the per You know ounce cost of lab grown meat just like the per ounce cost of like bringing you know engineering living life will continue to go down but this is not something you can do with like a hundred you know thousand dollar grant and that's what george had received before on this i mean this takes hundreds of millions of dollars at colossal we've got over 100 scientists we also work with 30 postdocs that we find around the world. You know, we've got four labs, the latest and greatest in technologies. I mean, even our microscopes are like, we use laser-assisted IVF. And I mean, it is some of the most advanced uh, technologies, you know, in the medical field that are being used on cutting-edge medicine that are all applied to this, right? Because it's a systems approach versus a point solution. So that's a lot of infrastructure. That's a lot of people. And so, you know, for us, I think that at t- over time that quickly scales down. You know, animal five is much cheaper than animal one. Yeah. No, but these are massive, fifty-plus million-dollar projects that you have to do, and that's just the time and effort that you have to put into it in order to be successful. Yeah. even computational time right like we built an entire computational biology company because of the challenges that the existing tool sets out there weren't you know able to provide and now that's that technology is now also being applied to human health which is great it's its own business it's great for us it's great for our investors but we had to go build an entire company and technology stack and, and hire computational biologists you know, to, to go solve this. And so it's you like get your it, own supply it.
0: chain kind yeah. of like thinking, you know, that's right. amazing. So in the spirit of that, what would you say the biggest challenge you guys have had to overcome as a company so far has been?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for us is we're going really fast. We want to be massively inclusive and transparent, but things happen so quickly here, right? And so one of the things that we knew people would be excited about this and want to talk about it. I think under indexed, we thought that if we just shared peer-reviewed papers, and we did a couple interviews occasionally and updated our website, that would be enough. It turns out that it's not enough. People really want to engage with what we're working on, which is great. And we're very excited about that. And so we've taken this approach that says that one of the biggest challenges I think that we've under-indexed you know, the amount of time that we need to spend on. It's our job to persuade anyone, but it is our job to educate the public on what we're doing and be collaborative and transparent. Mm-hmm. And so given the number of species that we're working on and the speed at which they are accelerating, you know, we're constantly working on ways to push that data out to the world because people are pretty hungry for that data, which is exciting. But I think that's been one of the big challenges. And then, you know, one of the biggest challenges when we got started was, you know, we didn't have a contract with Harvard. We didn't have any scientists. And we were like, we're going to go raise a series seed to go bring back the mammoth. You know, we had absolutely no business model. (laughs) <laughs> no scientists, no business model. And we're like, no, no, George said like we can figure this out. So, you know, that was, <laughs> it was a very short pitch deck. I mean, uh, I'd
0: imagine a lot of people that maybe in the very beginning got involved with passion and then it's like, hey, we'll figure it out later because this is something that I think people can really care about. Another thing that people really care about these days, and it's been a frequent subject on ship, has been the subject of AI, which is obviously an area that you've also played in have these worlds started to collide a little bit for you from prior companies is ai playing a factor and
1: it is and i you know i think it'll continue to play a factor in every business right and so we dabble in ai chaotic moon you know gaming there's a lot of early kind of like precursors to ai and kind of non-playable characters and whatnot i worked in some ai on light ai i would say then nlp and conversational interfaces which are another kind of subset of ai and then You know, Hypergiant does a lot. It is an AI company at its core. So that's been my trajectory. And Bio, which we spun out of Colossal, was really looking at, you know, how do we leverage automation and AI, you know, in some of the computational analysis, right? Looking at the differences in the genomes, looking at even predicting, you know, what potential off-target effects looking at what are the tool suites. So everyone kind of just clumps CRISPR as like, oh, genetic, that's CRISPR, right? And a lot of times we've been guilty of that just to make it easier on the public. Like, oh yeah, we use CRISPR. But we actually use a, a myriad of tools like DNA synthesis and single nucleotide edits. And then we will literally engineer big blocks of DNA and then swap that into the genome, right? Not just knockouts and stuff like that with CRISPR. And so what's interesting in our approach is we use all these different tools. And so much of it, I think people are surprised When they come to our labs while there's a lot going on in the actual labs and wetware there's so much that happens in software you know we are using existing tools plus developing our own tools and pipelines that are using ai and automation to make that process much easier right and then it's a constant feedback loop because we work on so many non-model organisms that we can train our systems even better
0: i want to jump back to an earlier subject one of the things with AI is, to your point, being kind of pervasive in almost every industry now, some of the challenges that you're talking about taking on, these are big, meaty, you know, global challenges. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, if you think AI actually makes addressing those challenges more accessible to smaller groups, individual entrepreneurs, does this reduce the barrier? Because now these things that seem so massive can be addressed by machines.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that we will see efficiencies created across most industries through the application of AI and various automation technologies at different levels, right? There will be many industries that just need certain levels of automation, whereas others will need, you know, much deeper kind of AI data sets, right? And things like, you know, nuclear stabilizing nuclear fusion or de-extinction right we'll need kind of harder sets but i think fundamentally we as humanity regardless of what field it is, is creating a lot of data very very quickly and it's just not something that's ingestible or manipulatable by humans at this scale right and so i think the bigger challenge you have to have these automated and ai systems in order to look through the data and kind of help make sense of it and you know even make either decisions or recommendations know, based on that data ingestion. I think data will actually make the world more inclusive and will make the world more accessible for people to tackle different problems just because I think the world has a massive data problem, right? And we just can't process it all and even see kind of like comb through it to kind of, you know, find the various needles in the various Mm -hmm. haystack.
0: And I think when you start talking about DNA and things like that in particular, I'm going to talk about the ultimate haystack, so to speak. So, yeah. yeah. yeah pretty, pretty, it, pretty it, biology specific. doesn't
1: work exactly like, I mean, it is biological. Biology feels like software, but it's like the worst spaghetti weird software you've ever yeah. seen. So yeah. uh, it's definitely not easy.
0: If you were to go back in your career and think about, you know again, I can't help but keep reflecting on this kind of journey from when we first met to where you're at and now, would you have done it any
1: differently to try and get from point A to point B? I mean, no, because I think that everything happens for a reason and I think that the skill sets you learn, the people you meet and whatnot. But I feel like to your point earlier about excitement, I do feel that with some of the early work, I've been very passionate about the teams, cultures the business outcomes right in building that right whereas now i think i'm more in love with our mission and impact right because i'm curious maybe i have ADD, but you know <laughs> going through that journey of constantly trying to learn new areas but all are kind of through that lens of you know system design system engineering has brought me to this point so i probably wouldn't change anything to kind of you know from a causality perspective to get here but yeah i will say that i am. More fulfilled. And while I always work a lot, I typically work six days a week, now working more than that just because this is so amazing.
0: But yeah, I feel like it's easy to lose yourself in that when you're enjoying it and it feels like you're doing something you know, meaningful. So uh, hats off to you, if you're having fun and making the kind of impact you are, then I think that's wonderful. You mentioned a second ago about how you wouldn't change anything necessarily too, because I think it's these experiences and aggregate is what kind of defines who you are and maybe allows you to do the things you can do because of all those, you know, accumulated experiences. And so for those of you who may be joining our ship for the first time, this kind of concept of these accumulated experiences that these leaders and entrepreneurs that we're so lucky to have on the show is really a big part of why O'Ship Show exists. And so what I'd love to ask you, Ben, is for what we like to call on this podcast an an O'Ship moment. And for those of you who haven't tuned in before, this is about kind of giving Ben an opportunity to look back in his career and say, what was a moment where... Maybe it could be early career, it could be his latest venture, whatever it is, just some significant moment where everything either was starting to come off the wheels or completely imploded, went totally wrong. And how you dealt with that. How did you learn from it? How did it change you? Did it yeah. shift the way that you are as a leader? Sometimes yeah. these are really inspiring I, I, stories. Really Sometimes did. they're really funny. I'm open whatever it is. But I would love to hear about kind I, I of where like you
1: dealt with it. And for me, at least, I, like the rest of the world, read these stories where I was like, oh, I just did this. I thought about this problem. And then it was like, you know, I solved all these problems, helped the world, you know, made a trillion dollars for our investors. I feel like I hear those stories, too. I have not experienced that, though. I feel like every day is an OSHIP moment. Unfortunately, I've had everything from like investors pull out to, you know, to employees pass away to, you know, to being sued. You know, I've gone through kind of all the traditional trials and tribulations. Yeah, I think check those boxes with you. you (laughs) But but I'll say one OSHIP moment that is recent, right? I I mean, literally, I think I can give you a thousand, right? I've had acquisitions of previous companies where people are like, oh, he started this and it grew and it sold. I've had acquisitions fall apart two days before, after you spent $700,000 in legal fees. I've had acquisitions literally fall apart two days before. So I've kind of seen a lot.
0: Nightmare fuel.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely nightmare fuel. Where you're like, oh my, cause then you're like, anyway, I'll tell you a recent OSHIP moment for me though was historically i'd started businesses grown them never really passed the baton on and those were the things i was focused on sometimes i was working on two or three businesses at the same time but still you know i was still running them with great management teams. And then I would go, you know, sell them and then move on or take a bigger role in something else I started. Right. That was traditionally my path. I'd never really been in a path where, you know, I'd built something really great and cool. Like John was pretty cool. Like pre-pandemic, you know, we're having dinners with Bill Nye. We're in the Pentagon. We're at NASA, like working with all the top technology players. It wasn't like the worst job. Right. And so I left that and put in an incredible You know, CEO that I'd known for a long time, recruited him, put him in as CEO to help scale the business to the next level so that I could go do this. And I was so excited about this. I flew out to meet with one of my mentors in New York, who I'll really remain nameless for this part. And I told him all about it and how excited I was and how this was going to change the world and amazing. And I was not taking any social cues from the dinner. And I was just so excited about it. And I was so in love. And I've known this person has been a very helpful mentor for me for a long time. And he looked at me and he's like, this is the worst decision I've ever seen. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, He's like, I can't believe you left your great company and your great culture and your great team. This is insane. You're going to ruin your reputation. No one's going to fund it. They're talking about Colossal? About Colossal. I got the list of things of like how this was the worst thing ever. And I was just sitting there like... It was one of my first meetings about this. I was like, okay, cool. And then I had a couple of other meetings. People were like, yeah, we don't get it. And I was like, no, wait, huh? And so then like, I had this like you know, true introspective moment, right? And then, But then I just sat down and I was like, no, this is too important. And so then I actually stopped talking to people, really sat down with George and said, who are the types of people that we should go after? Let's be really thoughtful about the approach here. And so we identified people in that cared about impact. We identified people that cared about consumer education and experiences, and we identified traditional technology entrepreneurs and investors that thought long term. And so we got connected with Thomas Tall. We got connected, and we knew Jim Breyer and a few others. And then you know we really you know instead of just going out to a handful of you know great investors I'd worked with before based on my first meeting, we were really mindful about. We need to go to people that have a long-term and can think on the scale this is and can also think very long-term. So it was actually really helpful. But I remember after the dinner, I was completely panicked of like, because this is a very smart, very successful, very important person to me. And actually later came into the deal, which is great. But <laughs> the moment... Like you are insane. You've had this incredible track record and you're just going to throw it all away. And I thought all about it. I stayed up all night and it made me rethink who we'd go to. But then separately, I almost took it as a challenge where it's like, I can always go build more software companies. Like that's, I've been pretty good at that. And so fundamentally, this was an opportunity to go build something that really matters. And I feel like every entrepreneur says a thousand times, oh, we're doing this, we want to change the world. We want to have an impact. And most of those companies just get bought, right? And so this was that moment where I felt a tremendous amount of excitement, but also felt, you know, hypocrisy. If you get presented an opportunity to really make an impact and change the world, and you've said that you want to do that your entire career, and then you get put at bat and you don't swing, then you've been lying to yourself and everyone else for years because you didn't really want to change the world, right? And so I felt like I just was given this opportunity, you know, by George And I didn't really feel like I had a choice almost.
0: Yeah. One of the things you mentioned there that I think is worth really leaning into for a brief moment is as you go out and do anything in this world, any kind of bold steps, most sensible people are asking people for feedback and for advice. And you want to accumulate all that advice, but you kind of have to be prepared for the people who are like, yeah, go for it, which is what you want to hear on some level you also have to be prepared for the people that may say, you know, they kind of poo-poo the idea, frankly. And what does that do to you emotionally, intellectually, and how do you yeah. kind of process that and choose what you filter and what you don't? You don't want to be one of those people who are like, well, I just always do my thing and I never listen to anyone, and, but trying to find that right balance yeah, and you stay it's, the it's course, a, and it's hard, and there's no easy is, answers on it, that's for it sure. It
1: is hard, and what I'll tell you is that, you know, my filter for that is being informed. And so... I believe you can learn a lot from an informed critic and you should listen to those people, like people that come from conservation, mm-hmm. that understand the real challenges of conservation, you should listen to them. You know, people that come from genetics that are like, hey, you may have this problem. You know, you should listen to them, right? Mm-hmm. And so you should be my at least I'm looking at it from the lens of Colossal, so you should be really mindful and listen to those problems of informed critics. Uninformed critics, I just don't listen to. Like, yeah, yeah, fair, fair I enough. Mean, right. I mean, I'm just being honest. Like, we've had people that have been quoted in press and it messaged us, and they're like, you know, they have zero background in genetics and they're like, this is not possible genetically. Good. <laughs> I, like once again, I'm glad that you care enough to say something about it, yeah. but it just creates noise. Right. So, yeah, I understand. so for us and for me, I really try to listen to informed credits. Like yeah. if you are knowledgeable in a category and you have feedback and I don't listen to it, that's a huge mess. So I really try to listen to informed critics and that's kind of I, my filter.
0: I love that. I think that's sound advice. I want to quickly take a moment just to thank our audience for tuning in this week. We really appreciate you guys being here every week with us. Whether you're, you know, watching via video or you are tuning in via one of our live streams, if you're looking for different ways to consume O'Ship Show, go to o'shipshow.com and you will see all the different platforms we're doing audio streaming on at this point. I mentioned the last week's episode, we're over fifteen thousand podcast subscribers now, which is very exciting. And, you know, if you're tuning in via YouTube or any of the other video platforms where we're sharing files, great. Please leave a like, leave a comment, subscribe. All of those things really help support the show. And, you know, this is something we do because we love it. It's never something we're going to commercialize. It's just about bringing great, useful, inspiring, thoughtful content to people that need it. And so thank you for being here and spread the good word. Ben, awesome to see you, man. And it's really cool to see just some of the incredible things you're doing. It's just too too cool, frankly. I wish I had 10 hours to talk to you, but I really appreciate you finding the time. I know you're a very busy guy to come chat with those shift show audience today. So thank you so much for that. We really appreciate you. What's the best place for the people to connect with you?
1: I mean, if we try to be really transparent. So follow colossal.com, follow us on Twitter, and then I'm on Twitter as well. So those are probably the best places.
0: Awesome. Ben, thank you again. Everyone from O'Ship, thank you for tuning in. We hope to see you next week and we appreciate your time. See you next week on O'Ship. Bye everyone.